Would you please stand for the call to worship from Psalm 68, verse 26. This is God's word. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. Would you please pray with me? God, you are to be blessed this morning. Often we pray that you would bless us, but we bless your name. 
We worship you. We are here to sing your praises, to make your name great through the power of the Holy Spirit. So would you give us your Holy Spirit to fill this place, to preach the gospel clearly and powerfully to us, and that you would send us out by the power of your Spirit to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in our lives, through our words, through our love for one another. So would you lead us in this time of worship, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would remain standing, we'll sing our first hymn, which is hymn 172, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, hymn 172. Let's worship together. I invite you now to take your bulletin and we will confess our faith together through faith. We'll be using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. 
he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. Colossians 2, starting at verse 6. This is God's Word. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll take a few moments now to go before our Lord and Savior and the God of the universe, and we will go to him in a time of silent prayer individually. And after a few moments uh, of prayer, we'll, I will lead us in a time of corporate prayer. Uh, so let's go before God and bring our needs and our desires, our wants, our sin, and bring those to him now. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you in prayer, and as we have just read in your word, we rejoice that you have set aside our record of debt, our sin. You nailed it to the cross, and when the world would openly shame us for our sin, you took our shame, and you nailed it to the cross. The shame you experienced on the cross, Jesus, was our shame. The penalty for sin you bore for us in your death was our penalty. And in you, we we witness the great reversal. Your enemies were put to open shame, exposed for the fools and enemies that they are. 
And God, when we're afraid of the evils of this world, you remind us how you've exposed the works of the devil. When we're tempted to sin and the desires of the world and the flesh, we recall the cross where you have triumphed and openly revealed the bankrupt life of this world's so-called saviors. So we pray, Lord, that you would make us alive as we live today as forgiven and loved children of God. And as a man said a long time ago, it is enough to believe. You haven't set our works against works, but you work through faith. You've made us new people. You've given us a new identity in yourself. And so we pray that you would cause us to live into it. Cause us to walk as people who know firsthand that you rule and are involved in even the most minuscule parts of our lives for your sake. If we are so free from our sin, let us experience life to the fullest without the fear of judgment. We pray that you would let us take risks to discover the gifts that you have given us, that you would help us to take hold of the freedom you give us to make mistakes, to be weak, and to walk as people who already have their inheritance in Christ. Dear Lord, we pray that you would make First Presbyterian Church a lighthouse for the power and testimony of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that you would make us a church that is strange to our neighbors who ask, what's going on with you? What's different about you? Why are you being so nice or so generous or so thoughtful? And when we lose ourselves to our anger and to our greed, to selfishness, would you make us strange to our neighbors and how quickly we repent and ask for forgiveness? Make us strange in how quick we are to acknowledge our sin and our wrong, to lay aside any entitlement, to lay aside all defensiveness, and to simply accept responsibility for our actions. And it's not a question of if you'll do this, Lord, for by faith you are already doing this. And so we pray that you would do this more and more for the sake of your glory. Lord, we call to mind Amber Hill. We pray that you would continue giving her great, uh, quick recovery from the delivery of her children. Lord, would you bring her home safely to her family, uh, back to full strength. God, we thank you for delivering her from uh, that peril, that you would be with the doctors, give her great care during these uh, days ahead. Lord, it is, uh, of course, a day in which uh, millions of people will be paying attention to the Super Bowl this evening. Uh, Somewhere around 130 million people will be watching this program. And so we pray, Lord, that somehow, in some way, that you would put the powers of this world to open shame, that you would somehow reveal the gospel in the players and perhaps their testimony. Uh, Lord, that the gospel somehow would be shared and seen uh, in this program that is focused almost completely on the desires of the flesh and of the world of the devil. God, show us uh, the good gifts that you've given to people um, in this football game, the joy that you can bring in the midst of it. Lord, would you bless the session 
and the diaconate of this church as they meet and give direction to this church and care for the needs of our people? Would you give them the ability to love and to lead well? God, we pray now that you would lead us in the prayer. You taught your disciples how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I invite you to stand for our next hymn. It's hymn 253, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Let's sing hymn 253.
You may be seated. Morning tithes and offerings as the choir uh, sings the anthem. We'll do that now.
Please pray with me. Lord, we give our tithes and offerings this morning to you. You have given us all things. You've blessed us richly, not just with our physical needs, but spiritually. So help us to draw on those in you. Lord, would you use these tithes and offerings for your glory, for your good, for your name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd invite you to turn with me now to the 17th chapter of the book of Genesis. Back in the fall, we were working through the book of Genesis, and we're going to resume that now, uh, probably until we get at least close to Easter. So I want us to read Genesis 17, verses 1 through 16. Beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you, and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall call her name, not Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations." Kings of peoples shall come from her. And this ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for his blessing during this time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to 
study your word and the life of the patriarch Abraham. We pray now that you would send out your light, send out your truth, challenge us, encourage us, send your spirit now for Christ's sake. We ask it in his name. Amen. So a while back when we looked at the story of the Tower of Babel, we talked a little bit about the subject of identity, and I acknowledge that it's, it's a subject I struggle with uh, because the concept is you know, so ubiquitous in the culture uh, that people can take it in so many different ways. But nonetheless, because it's such a buzzword and such an idea in the culture now, I still think it's important to talk about it. And this passage actually shows us some clear ways that the world around us gets identity wrong and gives us some corrections for how we can actually get the subject of identity right. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, this passage shows us what identity gives, what identity promises, and what identity tells us to do. So here's the first point, what identity gives. It gives a new name. That's what we see in the passage. One of the striking things about the passage is that God gives Abram and Sarai new names. God naming or renaming someone is something you see a number of times in the Bible, which means it's significant. This happens with Jacob, with Joshua, with Solomon, with Peter, and with several others. Solomon is an interesting example uh, Solomon was born under less than ideal circumstances. Uh, he was, his mother was Bathsheba, who, of course, King David committed adultery with this woman. And as a result, their first child died, and then God granted them a second child, and Solomon is born. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, it says, Bathsheba bore a son, and David called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Did you know Solomon's name is Jedidiah, according to God? The name Solomon comes from the word shalom, which means peace. And David was a man of war. He was in battles all of his life and throughout his kingship. And he wanted nothing more than for his son, Solomon, who was going to be the, his successor as king, to have peace. And so he names him peace. He names him Solomon. But God calls Solomon Jedidiah. That means beloved of Yahweh. Beloved of the Lord. David's idea for his son was peace. God's idea for David's son was for him to be someone who would be beloved by God. And this really tells the story of Solomon's life. Solomon worked hard for peace. So hard for peace that he ended up marrying foreign wives who were princesses of foreign kings to make, in order to make treaties and have peace with those foreign kings so that Israel wouldn't be attacked by them. But the end result of that was that these foreign wives brought their foreign idols that they worshipped with them and idolatry spread throughout all the land of Israel. Yes, they had peace. But they also had idolatry. So David says, I want my son to have peace. God says, I want your son to be beloved of God. But Solomon lived into his given name, Solomon, peace, rather than his God-given name of the Lord's beloved. And as a result, it destroyed him 
and it destroyed Israel. See, one of the problems with modern identity that this sheds light on is that we think we can name ourselves and live as we please. You can now say, I identify as X, you know, fill in the blank, and it's just so. But there's a problem with thinking that you can name yourself. You know, a great example of this is a movie that came out just a few years ago called Lady Bird. And I first heard about this movie from a Christian philosopher named James K.A. Smith. But Lady Bird's given name is Christine. And I don't think that's an accident when the screenwriters were coming up with this because she's a teenage girl attending a Catholic school, attending church regularly. There's images of church and chapel services throughout the movie. But there's a lot of tension in Christine's relationship with her mother. And as an act of rebellion against her mother, she says, I'm no longer Christine. From now on, call me Ladybird. She names herself. Now, Ladybird auditions for a play in a key scene in the movie, and the director of the play says to her, Ladybird, is that your given name? Her response is, I gave that name to myself. It was given to me by me. This is her searching for an identity trying to create an identity, trying to name herself. And I actually know people who've done this. There was a girl I went to elementary school with, really good friends with, and then all of a sudden, junior high, she shows up with her hair dyed blonde, and she says, don't call me Carla anymore, call me Vivian. I doubt she'll watch this, so I feel pretty safe saying. <laughs> but then she became Vivian. And then she was Vivian Oblivion. And she actually wanted to be called this. Another person that I went to school with, I was really good friends with. He's moved a lot as an adult. He's moved to different cities. And every time I, I get a new friend, every time he moves, I get a friend request on Facebook. And I'm like, oh, he moved because he changes his name. He adopts some kind of new persona, some sort of new nickname. And I know him well enough to know it's him and to accept it. But the question is, why do people do this? Why do they change their names? It's because they're trying to establish a new identity. They're trying to say to the world, this is who I am. So in the movie, Lady Bird, Lady Bird moves off to college, and she has a couple of bad relationships with guys, and she finds herself out on a bender one night so badly uh, that she ends up in the hospital. And waking up from it and coming out of the hospital, she's been thinking about the fact that her mother isn't as terrible as maybe that she thought she was. And she calls her mom and leaves a voicemail. And she says, hi, mom and dad. It's me, Christine. It's the name you gave me. It's a good one. It's a metaphor. That's a metaphor for what all Christians go through. God names us. He calls us Christians. He calls us sons and daughters. He calls us beloved but we're still tempted to try to name ourselves. It's Solomon living out his desire for peace instead of living out of and into God's love for him. It's Peter, Simon, Peter, living out his instability and his rebellion instead of living into and out of the identity Christ gave him, which he says, I call you rock. You're stable. It's Abraham and Sarah insisting the help of Hagar to have a child instead of believing the promise of God. You know, another illustration of this 
of how this works out in the Christian life, again, it's the movie The Matrix. You know, the main character, Keanu Reeves' character in The Matrix, in the old world of The Matrix, his last name is Anderson. In the new world where he's released from The Matrix, he's called Neo. And when, whenever he encounters the bad guys, the agents in The Matrix, the AI programs that are trying to kill him, they call him Mr. Anderson. That's his old name. And you know, one of the climactic moments of the movie is finally when he's, he's battling one of the agents and he says, I am not Mr. Anderson. I am Neo. It's him embracing his new identity. Embracing his new name. And th- that's the Christian life. It's us more and more remembering. We're not that old person that we used to be. When, you know, we are, when we are in Christ Jesus, we become a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new, says the Apostle Paul. You are not what you were. You are not some identity that was slapped upon you or that you created for yourself. You are what Christ says you are. In our passage, notice in verse 5, God says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And then notice in verse 15, it says, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So what's the significance of this name change, of God naming them? Well, Abram means exalted father. Abraham means exalted father of a multitude. Uh, Tim Keller, funny line he used a lot over the years, he said God changed Abraham's name from Daddy to Big Daddy. That you're not only going to be a father, which was hard for Abram to believe, right? This is going to be miraculous for him to be a father. You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. Kings are going to come from your lineage. And then Sarai, whose name is changed to Sarah. Sarai means my princess. Sarah means princess of a multitude. So Sarah, Sarai, is not just Abraham's princess. Now, she's going to be the princess of a mass amount of humanity. See, they both relate to God's plan to make Abraham and Sarah the parents of the faithful throughout the nations. God is saying to them, you don't need Hagar's in your life. You don't need anything. You need me. You don't have to name yourself. I've given you a name, and it's a good one. Now live into it. So the first thing. Identity from God gives us a name. Here's the second thing. Along with God giving a new name comes what this new identity promises. Let's read it starting in verse 7 of our passage. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The promise that this new identity gives them is a promise of transformation. God is saying, I'm going to take you, Abraham and Sarah, you barren sojourners, and I'm going to make a covenant with you and use you to make a family. The family of God that's going to cover the entire, not only the entire land, ultimately it's going to be the entire world. A true identity 
involves transformation. It's becoming what God meant you to be. It's embracing the destiny that God has for you. And that destiny involves your transformation. See, this highlights another problem with the modern world's concept of identity. Not only do people think that they can name themselves, they think once they've named themselves and named their identity that they don't have to change. Let me put it this way. Modern identities are often labels we put on things about us that are actually bad, specifically so that we can say, that's who I am, I don't have to change, and I'm not changing. There is no need for transformation. I am perfect, I am complete, just the way that I am. And so you imagine God coming to Abraham while he's still living with his parents and saying, Abraham, I I want you to go to a land that you've never seen and I'm going to transform you into the father of nations. And Abraham says, sorry God, I identify as a man who lives in his parents' basement. I'm beautiful. I don't need to change. There was a video a few years ago somebody put out. It was hilarious, but he said he identified as an Apache attack helicopter. And so... How are you going to question it? It's who I say I am. It's me. I'm beautiful. Don't judge me. You can identify as an Apache attack, attack helicopter, but it doesn't change the fact you can't shoot missiles out your armpits. You know. Those type of identities are just a label. And they're often used to shirk our responsibility for transformation uh, rather than embracing transformation that God wants to offer us. If you find a true identity, an identity that comes from God, it won't let you stay what you are. It will demand transformation. You know, Pinocchio can't stay on Pleasure Island. He has to become a real boy. Geppetto didn't want a lifeless puppet. He wanted a real son. God is saying, Abraham, it's time for you to become a real boy, a real man, a real father. It's time to realize my purposes for you and to trust them. And remember, verse 1 told us Abraham was 99 years old when this happened. It can take years. It can take decades for you to embrace your identity as a believer and actually begin to truly live into it in faith. Abraham has been walking with God for 30 years by the time we get to Genesis 17. And God is still saying, I have a plan to transform you. My plans for you are not just the past. They're not just the present. They're the future. You know, one of the, uh, um, my favorite children's stories is the Velveteen Rabbit. Um, I was, I thought of it this past week, studying this passage. I'll show you why in just a minute. But it's funny, if you Google the Velveteen Rabbit, most of the search responses are things like, why does the Velveteen Rabbit make you cry uncontrollably? Uh, Things like this. But the story is, there's this little toy rabbit made of velvet who filled with sand, but he wants to be real. And he asked an older, wiser toy, the rocking horse, what is real? Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the horse. It's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long time, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, Then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the horse. But when you're real, 
you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once? Like being wound up? Asked the rabbit. Or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the horse. You become. It takes a long time. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you are real, you are real. If you're a believer, God says to you, I have a name for you. I have a purpose for you. It may take a long, long time. And the velvet may eventually wear really, really thin. But I've given you a name. And it's a good one. Believe the promise that I'm, going to let you, I'm not going to let you stay what you are. I'm going to transform you. You are real. You are a child of God. And you're going to grow more and more in what I already say that you are. Our new identity means that God gives us a name. And he gives us a promise of transformation that we can hope in. And finally, thirdly, God gives us something to do. Our identity tells us to do something. God doesn't say, Abraham, you are who you are, and nothing is required of you. Modern identities, the most that they can tell you to do is become an activist of some sort, but they don't actually give you a mission for your life. God gives you a mission for your life. So starting in verse 1 of Genesis 17, when Abraham was when Abram was 99 years old the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him I am God almighty walk before me and be blameless There's your mission walk before God and be blameless Well that sounds very daunting be blameless Well the King James's translation of it is even more daunting cuz it says be perfect You saying that's our mission to be perfect That's why this command is bound up in the covenant that God made with Abraham. Remember earlier in Genesis 15, God made a covenant with Abraham. He told Abraham to sacrifice animals, to cut the animals in half. And God ends up passing through these sacrificial pieces of the animals in the, the semblance of fire. Telling Abraham, you're going to fail in the obligations of this covenant that I've set before you. But I'm pledging myself to take those obligations upon myself. If you fail, I will go so far as to die for you in order to establish and continue to keep this covenant with you to make you the father of many nations. So this command is given in the context of covenant. So you ask the question, well, what is a covenant? Palmer Robertson, in Christ of the Covenants, defines a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly, sovereignly administered. When I took covenant theology in seminary, we had to chant that. Every class, what is a covenant? A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. God made a bond in blood with Abraham. Circumcision is a sign of that bond in blood. And we see it mentioned throughout the passage. For instance, in verse 10, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. It's very Presbyterian sounding language. A sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So circumcision involves the cutting of flesh. It involves blood. It's a sign of the covenant. But if it's a sign... Signs point to something else. What does it point to? It's a sign of a promise that God makes to all of his people through Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This was a sign that was meant to point to the new birth to being born again, to God taking away a heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh so that you could turn away from your sin and turn toward God. It's a sign of us receiving a new name and a new identity when we're born again. It's a sign of our transformation into the children of God. But we don't follow that practice anymore. So how does it apply to us in the modern world? If your name is Christian, then you need to hear what we read earlier in Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 11. The Apostle Paul said this, In Christ, you, he's talking to Gentile believers, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul is saying, this sign of God's covenant with Abraham is applied to you spiritually. When you're born again and God cuts away your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. But then he, used that re- he uses that real odd, mysterious phrase. He calls this process the circumcision of Christ. So you ask the question, well, what is he talking about there? And commentators debate this, but one thing they agree on is Paul isn't talking about when Jesus physically experienced the cutting of a blade when he was eight days old. Some commentators think it's referring to Christ's flesh being pierced when he was on the cross. All of our hymns, as I picked them uh, today, I wanted to refer to this idea because like we sang that Christ has washed us with his blood. He's brought us near to God. We sang there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. But the point of this last point, yes, it's Christ's death for us that creates our new identity. But there's more than this to that passage in Colossians. We also need to read verse 12. So let me start in verse 11 and read verse 12 along with it. Colossians 2.11 In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul is saying, just as Abraham circumcising his sons was a sign pointing to God's covenant, their identities, and God's promise to transform them, 
your baptism is a sign of God's covenant, your identity, and God's promise to transform you. Like circumcision was for Abraham, his children, and foreigners who came into his house, Acts chapter 2 tells us that baptism is for you, for your children, and all those who are far off. It's his mark on you that you belong to him and that he has an identity and a plan for you. And you could say, but I know people who've been baptized and who aren't living into their Christian identity and aren't being transformed by God. So what was their baptism all about? Here's the answer of our doctrinal standards, uh, particularly the Westminster Larger Catechism. The Catechism talks about the practice of improving your baptism. What does that mean? Let me read from it from you briefly. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by all of us all our life long by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein. By drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ, into whom we are baptized, for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness, as those that have therein given up their names to Christ. Here's what the Catechism is saying. When you were baptized as an adult or as a child or as an infant, you gave up your name. You took the mark of a new identity. And the rest of your life is to be spent remembering that you took that mark upon yourself, that you gave up your name, and that you or your parents solemnly pledged you to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's improving your baptism. It's thinking, you should meditate often on your baptism. You know, in the old covenant, when Abraham and Isaac took the sign of the covenant, it was unavoidable. It was something in the flesh. It was something you had to notice, something you had to think about. Not so much with baptism. And so what the catechism actually says is, you particularly, whenever you go through trials, think about your baptism. Remember you took the name of Christ upon yourself, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit upon yourself, and you said, now I belong to Jesus. Or your parents said, I'm dedicating this child to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that. And it may, you know, it reminds you you're not Mr. Anderson. You are Neo. You're not a puppet. You're a real boy. It may take you until all the velvet is worn off the rabbit. But we're going to keep reminding you. That's the church's job. That's my job, to keep reminding you over and over again until the velvet wears off, the eyes fall out, and the joints can't move anymore. That you've pledged yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And more importantly, that Christ has pledged himself to you. This is why I love, and you've, many of you have heard it before, during the Reformation in the French Reformed Church, they had various forms of baptismal liturgies. But this is one thing that they would say to a child who was being brought forth by parents to be baptized. They would say, For you, little one, the Spirit of God moved over the waters at creation. And the Lord God made covenants with his people. It was for you that the Word of God became flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. For you, Jesus Christ suffered death, crying out in the end, 
It is finished. For you, Christ triumphed over death, rose in newness of life, and ascended to rule over all. All of this was done for you, little one, though you do not know any of this yet. But we will continue to tell you this good news until it becomes your own. And so the promise of the gospel is fulfilled. We love God because he first loved us. This gospel is going to keep telling you God has given you a name. And it's a good one. Live out of that name. Live into that name. Let us pray. Father, you have given us a name. It is a good one. You've called us your sons and daughters. You've called us your beloved. You've called us followers of Christ. And so help us as the world tempts us to take on new identities, to try to name ourselves, to try to name ourselves in order to justify our sin and our lack of transformation, Lord. Help us to grow into the name that you've given us. Help us to improve our baptisms and live out everything that they entail, that we have been washed clean of our sins because there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's names and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all of their guilty stains. That we've, been, we've had your Holy Spirit poured out upon us and he gives us strength to live the transformative type of life that Christ has planned for us. Help us even if all the velvet is worn off and we feel weak and weary, to remember that you're not finished with us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'd invite you to turn with me in your hymnals now for our closing hymn, which is number 264. Please stand with me for 264.
Now the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.